The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Steady Investor with Mark Vickery and Mitch Zacks. In our program today, we'll help you get started or continue to build your nest egg with some of the best practices for retirement planning. It's time to start right now. Here are your hosts, Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery. Good morning, Voice America. Welcome to the Steady Investor Show. My name is Craig Itan. I'll be your guest host until Mitch Zacks comes here in a few minutes. And today with me is Manish John. Good morning, Manish. How are you? Good morning. How are you doing? Good. Uh, we're having a little cloudy weather today here. Starting to get a little cool. I think fall's starting to come in. Perfect for football season. <laughs> well, I wish we had a football team to go with it, but uh, that's another story for all your Bear fans out there. Um, today, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about what we're seeing going on out in the marketplace and so forth. And one of the things I'd like to talk about with you, Manish, is that uh, the, the September market, there's always been that September market uh, myth out there when it comes to stocks in September. And there's quite a bit of history around it with a simple message of selling. Uh, but uh, since the inception of Dow Jones in the 1890s, this has been uh, bringing us to a season that's almost brought us to a, a, a buy or brought us to a pattern of a fall. And September has delivered an average loss of negative 1.1% compared to other months over the prior years. What do you think about that, and, and what's your advice about don't buy into the market myths for September? Sure. Uh, excellent question as we get into the September after basically a very uh, very tight trading range over the last 30 days, 60 days or so uh, with the market, and market being very low volatile right now. This is one of those phenomenons that people catch on to. Uh, they just take a look at a data that has been confirmed a couple of times, and then they try to make it a long-term projection out of it. It's similar to the January effect, similar to sell in May uh, and go away, similar to that October and September are, are pretty bad months. And they become a self-fulfilling prophecy, meaning as more and more people mm -hmm. hear about it, well, they say, okay, you know what, let me sell now. Uh, before it gets into later in the month and avoid some of the downside. And as they sell, the market does drop a little bit. And they say, aha, I was right. I should have, uh, this is what it means. That's uh, sell in uh, May or sell in September or, or whatever the month is. They're taking very spurious data, making a correlation out of it when there really isn't. Mm -hmm. If you go back and take a look through the history, like you mentioned, okay, hey, it has had the September has had an average loss of 1.1 percent. Well, that's an average loss. That doesn't mean that it happens every single year. There will be some years when the market goes up, some years when the market goes down. So since 1945, S&P has fallen in September 55 percent of the time. Okay, what does it mean? Well, it's still a 50-50 percent chance. Okay. So that means 45% of the time, S&P actually went up in September. So 
do we really want to say, okay, hey, just based on a on a coin flip, mm-hmm. which is uh, what a 50-50 is, that we want to sell in September, uh, realize some gains, pay some taxes, go through all the transaction costs, and then come back in October or November or so. And there's no guarantee of that. So uh, one of the other instruments are, uh, we went back and looked at some um, investment returns. And just as September, there's also the sell in May and go away type of phenomenon. And the uh, thinking behind that one is, hey, summer months, it could become volatile. There's not a lot of uh, trading volume. Market could be uh, going up and down uh, quite a bit uh, because all the serious players have gone away and the amateurs are running the market. And they say, okay, sell in May, come back in October or so. Well, we looked at the last three out of the four years. Okay, I mean, just this past year, uh, if you had sold in April uh, 29th of this year, S&P was about 2065. Right now we're at 2170. So you would have missed out on a 5% gain. Okay, Last year, S&P did drop during that time. But the previous three years, S&P was actually up. So mm-hmm. well, we looked at the last three out of the four years. Okay, I mean, just this past year, uh, if you had sold in April uh, 29th of this year, S&P was about 2,065. Right now we're at 2,170. So you would have missed out on a 5% gain. Okay. Last year, S&P did drop during that time, but the previous three years, S&P was actually up. So mm-hmm. just based on an illogical thinking, in my opinion, uh, of selling man go away, uh, you would have lost out on these uh, 5%, 6% drops, uh, sub 5 or 6% gains in the market. Right. So in the average, it said sometimes it dropped 1.1% in September, and sometimes you, you see a gain of uh, 5% overall. So with a 50-50 chance, it's better off to stay, if that was what I'm hearing, and reap the benefits of, of the long term versus the short term. So Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct, and that we always... Uh, advise long-term investments, uh, long-term asset allocation for the clients, rather than trying to time the market. And as soon as you go into the September myth, the January effect, the sell in May effect, what you're doing is making your investment horizon much more short-term. And you're trying to capture the peaks and the lows uh, at the perfect time. And I can tell you uh, that no one can capture those. Okay. Uh, In hindsight, we can always say, I should have bought on this date and sold on this date. But when you're living in the moment, there is no way. So it's just one of those things where, uh, yes, you could be down 1%, but there's a good chance you could be up also. Okay. That's very interesting to know because September, as you know, sometimes it kind of reminds you of what happens in January when you have the January effect and also sometimes the sell in May and go away effect. So this is uh, pretty powerful, the information, the statistics you've given. I, I'd like to, uh, as a takeaway, we talked about being uh, in it for the long term versus short term. What are the uh, two market mantras that investors should focus on instead? So first of all, diversification. Okay, You need to make sure you're properly diversified according to the risk that you're willing to take and the time horizons of your investments. Okay, We have, we have mentioned over and over again, an investor's ability and willingness to take risk. 
willingness to take risk goes up and down based on what the market is doing in the past 30 days, in the past uh, 60 days or so. The ability to take risk is much more longer term. Okay, It's based mm-hmm. on when you're looking to retire or if you're in retirement already, when you're looking to uh, how much money do you need from your portfolio for uh, for your expenses and stuff Correct. like that. So uh, not only do you need to have a proper time frame and the proper uh, willingness to take risk, but then it comes down to diversification. Okay, you cannot predict which asset class or which stock will do better this year versus last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have seen the Callan chart uh, where it shows what different sectors have done well over different years. In some years, it's small cap value. Some years, it's small cap growth. Some years, it's large cap value, mid cap, bonds. It goes through phases. Okay. okay. And there is no uh, ups and downs. There's, no, um, uh, there's no pattern to it. Okay. Gotcha. So diversification meaning that you have exposure to the large the mid the small based on your ability to take risk that is important second is you need to have a long-term time horizon okay you cannot change your investment or base your investment on what the market will do over the next 30 days 60 days 90 days if you continue to do that you'll continuously get whipsawed you're going to be living more moment to moment and Nine out of ten times what we have seen is it is detriment to the client investment goals for the long term. So keep, keep coming back to diversification and then have a long enough time horizon. So that's very good, Manish. This is uh, Mitch here and we're here with Craig and uh, uh, Manish. And we're just talking a little bit about uh, the importance of diversification. And one thing that uh, people may not realize is that with diversification, a large issue is the level of the correlation uh, between the asset classes. So that if you have the traditional response uh, to the free lunch in investment management is that by having uncorrelated asset classes uh, together, uh, you're essentially able uh, to reduce the overall risk of the underlying portfolio. And one of the importance of fixed income, even though uh, you know I believe fixed income is going to uh, underperform equities over long periods of time is that fixed income is somewhat negatively, uh, not strongly correlated with the market. And the reason is that when there's a uh, when there's an economic shock that is negative, uh, when you have effectively the economy coming under pressure, uh, what usually happens is that interest rates fall because demand for money falls. So at the same time you have interest rates falling, then you have earnings falling. The falling earnings cause stock prices to go down. Uh, but the falling interest rates actually cause bond prices to potentially increase. Uh, and then similarly, when the economy is expanding, earnings are generally uh, exceeding expectations, which would be positive for equities. Uh, but at the same time, earnings are exceeding expectations. It's causing demand for money to uh, sort of heat up and it's causing interest rates to rise, which puts downward pressure on fixed income prices. So although we know that over long periods of time, equities will most likely outperform fixed income. And there have been periods of time historically when this has not occurred, but we've been in this 35-year bull market uh, for fixed income securities. By holding both in the portfolio to some extent uh, can reduce the overall risk of the uh, portfolio. Now, one of the other things, Mitch, is that when we, yeah, historically we have seen definitely that equities have outperformed uh, fixed income. 
and, and that's true. And that's to be expected because you are taking on more risk with the equity market. Uh, you are more susceptible to the downside. Uh, one of the key things also is we cannot just put a generic term of equities. Okay, this right. is where diversification right. comes in. Like, okay, when we when we're talking about equities, is it the S&P 500? Is it the mid cap? Is it the two th- Russell 2000? And that's where the diversification comes in since we cannot predict, okay, this sector of the equities will be going up over the next three years or five years or so by this amount, you need to have a diversified basket. Of right, investment. you need to be exposed to all sorts of different types of equities and different uh, sort of styles of equity investment. So that uh, there's a traditional belief that over long periods of time, uh, value stocks will outperform growth stocks, uh, but there are five and 10 year periods where the opposite is the case, where growth will over outperform value. So unless you have a, a very good view on whether value is going to outperform growth, you know, a good way to approach this problem is to say statistically value will generate excess returns. Let's overweight value stocks slightly in the portfolio, but let's not eliminate growth stocks entirely. And what we try and do in, in the strategies is are implement uh, anomalies uh, that are independent of these classifications. So instead of saying we want only value stocks or we want only growth stocks, we're looking for stocks that are potentially uh, receiving upward earnings estimate revisions. And at certain points in the economic cycle, those stocks receiving upward earnings estimate revisions are predominantly value stocks. And at other points, uh, they're predominantly growth stocks. And so you're trying to find a signal that is independent of a style classification that can help you move within style classifications based on where that signal is uh, materializing. But Manish, now that we've finally got you down here into the uh, radio room, I wanted to talk to you about where you saw sort of the uh, future of interest rates. Um, There's a really, the, the big issue in my mind is that for the last 35 years, we have effectively have seen uh, interest rates fall since the 80s. So since the 80s, when interest rates were, you know, uh, pushing double digits, even into the double digits, we've seen them come down dramatically to the point where, at least in, in Europe, uh, interest rates are lower than they've ever been historically. In the U.S., they, they're lower than I can, uh, you know, in, in the last 50 or 60 years. And the real question that is driving the market and is driving uh, decision-making processes by investors of whether to allocate to equities or fixed income is where we think interest rates are going. I keep saying I think interest rates are going higher because these very, very low levels are not sustainable. Uh, these low mortgage rates are not sustainable. And uh, you know, with, with the growing economy, you're going to see interest rates going higher. But we're seeing this downward pressure on interest rates that tends to persist for long periods of time. And if you had come back, if, you had, if we had talked about this a year ago, and uh, said that you know a year from now interest rates are going to be at 1.5 percent. I would have said there there's some massive market uh, collapse occurring in terms of the economic uh, downward economic pressure. Like we would be in a recession. Here we are. Interest rates are 1.5 percent on the 10-year Treasury. There is no economic recession. The data that we're seeing in terms of the jobless numbers is actually very very positive. What do you think is really going on here? Well, it's entirely, in my opinion, driven by investor sentiment for long term. Okay. okay. You have the rest of the world pretty much at negative interest rates. Right. Okay. You have Germany, Japan, Switzerland. Uh, interest rates, I think maybe Australia and Mexico and a few other countries where interest rates are higher than U.S. 
Right. Okay. Pretty much everyone is. So lower. you have the developed markets having yeah. these negative interest these rates. Negative people, interest rates. And just so people understand that, that means that when you give your money in a German bond, you are paid back less money than you give to them. Yes. So you give them a hundred dollars, and in ten years they will give you ninety nine dollars. It's a guaranteed loss. Guaranteed a loss of money. Yes. So you're giving up use of your money. You're giving up consumption of that money. Yeah. You're giving it to the to these these sovereign governments, and you're getting less money back. Yeah. And the reason people are doing this is why? It's just uh, safety. Driven by ECB. Okay. Okay. ECB is continuously going out and buying uh, uh, corporate bonds and buying other government bonds. So and they're uh, they have expanded the pool of securities that they're buying. Safety is another reason. People say, okay. Hey, at least I know the most I will lose is one percent or two percent or so. Okay, whereas if I put it into equities or something else, and there's a chance of recession, I could be down even more. But to me, it's it's really flabbergasting. I mean, it's just for the for the length of time that we have had these negative interest rates. Right. Uh, the world is upside down. Okay? Right. So investors, rather than looking at European bonds or so, are coming more and more into the U.S. side. Right. So that's why you see the 10-year Treasury continuously under pressure in terms of rates. It's staying at 1.5%. So, so it's, got, it's got to be the federal, it's got to be these central banks. In, it's a supply and demand. It, it can't just be supply and demand. It can't just be that people are demanding bonds to such an extent they're causing rates. To, it has to be that the central bank is signaling to the market that they're going to keep rates so low, and there's such a little chance. That so Japan and ECB definitely yeah. yes, okay. Right. But on our side here, the Federal Reserve is talking about okay, raising rates. Raising rates, okay. Right. Uh, Yellen was talking at the Jackson Hole uh, meeting, and then Fisher came on and said even more forcefully, right. okay, that, that, that hey, we're going to raise rates. We're going to raise rates, time. okay. Right. So that's why you've seen short-term Treasury rates so go you have up. This wor- okay, so you have this world movement of capital towards U.S. fixed income yeah. because in their sovereign. Uh, Currency, they're not getting a positive rate. They're not of they're not, so they, they're going to go and they're going to buy U.S. Treasuries. So that's why the U.S. dollar has been strong. Right. Okay. Because more and more money is flooding here. And then also, uh, a lot of the pensions, a lot of the endowments, they have these asset, asset allocation uh, plans. Right. 60% stocks, 40% right. bonds. Right. Okay. Whatever right. it is. As the stock market has continuously gone up 5%, 6% right. this year or so, they need to rebalance. So they need okay? to be selling stocks. So and they need to be selling stocks bonds. and buying bonds. So that's why you have seen the long-term bonds, basically five years out and more, continuously come under pressure because of these external forces. Short-term, which is what the Fed is controlling, right. you have seen the Treasury yields now come up to like 0.8 percent or so. And the futures market this morning is about a 62 percent chance that, that, that uh, we're going to see, a... see a rate hike by December. Right. All right. So we have September. November and December. December, we have three meetings. Right. More importantly, this Friday we have the jobs data coming up. Got it. So. Uh, okay, so we'll get to this after the break, but the, the you know we'll, we'll go to break for a second, come back, and the key question in my mind is whether, and what I'd like to focus really the discussion on is whether we're going to see interest rates remain uh, relatively low for the foreseeable future. If interest rates remain as low as they are, you're going to have to see the equity market uh, dramatically appreciate. If you start seeing interest rates start to rise, you're going to see some downward pressure on uh, fixed income investments, obviously, but also on the equity side. So after break, we'll talk a little bit about what's going on. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to ZimWealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934. Or go to ZimWealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back uh, to The Steady Investor. Uh, it's Mitch Zacks here with uh, Manish Shane. And what we're talking about here is what I think is the largest issue facing uh, the fixed income market and to some extent the equity market, which is where we're going to see interest rates go from here. And we ended the last segment by talking about how in the uh, European Union and Japan, to some extent, you're seeing actual negative nominal rates. So that means that people are lending their money to the German government uh, and they're getting a uh, less money back 10 years from now. Uh, or several years from now, does it go out to 10 years, the negative rates, Manish? Or it's a, uh, Switzerland goes all the way up to 30 years. So you're saying in the, in the Swiss government, you're lending your money to the Swiss government, you're guaranteed to lose money, get less money back in the in the future. Yep. And what's driving this is that it, you, you have a negative interest rate. Now, it's not unheard of to have a uh, negative interest rate. What is unheard of is to have a negative nominal rate. So just to take a step back, what we have is you have the actual uh, interest rate that people pay and you have the inflation rate. And the real rate of return is the actual rate, the, the nominal rate that's being paid uh, minus the rate of inflation. And it is not unheard of uh, it, historically to have negative rates of return on government bonds after adjusting for inflation. So inflation might be at two, 3% uh, and the bond yields are 2.5%. So you're getting more money back, but you're actually losing money relative to inflation. What we have now going on in Europe and in Japan and in Sweden and in other countries is that essentially the inflation rate has gone to zero. So the negative real rate becomes a negative nominal rate. And what's happened historically I've seen is that the negative real rates are not sustainable over long periods of time. So I look at that and I come to the conclusion that whatever is uh, pushing these rates lower has to abate at some point in time and you're going to have to see interest rates moving higher. And that's one of the things that we're seeing here also is that uh, previous inflation numbers here were in that one and a half percent area or so. Expectations are 
that as oil prices firm up, and we have seen some of that, uh, so year over year, oil is now $50 a barrel versus $40 a barrel right. last year, so that's an increase uh, in terms of inflation cost. Housing prices have been firming up. Average hourly earnings have right. been firming up also. Uh, they were up about 2.5% year over year. Right. So when you combine all of those things together, you will see that overall inflation numbers now coming in in that 1.82% level. Now, mm -hmm. these are at the core levels. At the nominal levels, now we're looking at above 2% or so. So eventually, the bond investors have to say, okay, if the if my inflation cost is 2%, 2.5%, I need to get at least that much in my bonds to break even right. from, a, from a real rate point of view. So right now, if interest rates are at 1.5%, Inflation's at 1.8. They're actually right. losing. They're actually losing 0.3%, which is not unheard of. It does happen in government fixed income markets where the real rate is actually negative. So you're, you, the nominal rate minus the inflation rate is a negative number. What's happening now, though, is the nominal rate is going to negative because the inflation rate is basically zero, as far as I can tell. And, and they also, we might, we uh, discussed last uh, segment that okay, a lot of it's being driven by what the ECB and what the central bankers are doing. Is that they're, uh, right, they're, they're, thinking, they're thinking in their in their point is hey we need to get the economy jump started let's lower interest rates to a point where businesses are uh, more. But it's not working. It's like pull. It's like pushing on a string. What's so, happening is everyone's doing it. Every central bank is doing the exact same thing, taking their signals uh, from the U.S. Uh, Federal Reserve, and as a result, uh, the the, uh, the the sovereign currencies are devaluing against one another. So normally what would happen is one country would do this. They would keep their interest rates uh, very, very low. Demand for their currency would decrease and they would start exporting things because their exports would yep. be cheaper relative to everyone else. But what's going on here effectively is that because every country is trying the same exact uh, plan of attack uh, to uh, sort of jumpstart the economy, it's, it's, there, there's no increase due to exports. And uh, it, it feels like they're the deflationary pressures uh, that are, are, are on the world don't show any sign of abating at this point. And this is one of the important things that I think central banks across the world are realizing. And what we have heard from some of our, like either Yellen and Bernanke yeah. before, is that they're realizing the limits to monetary policy. Right. Okay. In terms of jumpstarting the economy. More and more pressure, in my opinion, is going to be put on fiscal policy changes to the fiscal policy in terms of either taxes, in terms of uh, right. credits. But the, if you look at the debt of these uh, almost every developed country uh, relative to GDP, it's, uh, it's if they're not at all-time highs, I mean, they were a little bit higher a couple of years ago, they're, they're very close to all-time highs. I mean, the U.S. doesn't have a tremendous amount of leeway in terms of, you know, debt to GDP in the U.S. I think is about one times uh, GDP. Well, so, so some tough decisions will have to be made. Okay, because again, they're realizing all of this. All of this, Manish, points towards some sort of recurrence of inflation. So, would because effectively, if a country has a large amount of debt, their only ways of getting rid of the debt are to increase taxes, stop spending less, or sort of cause inflation to occur so that their uh, what what they owe is 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 worth less in in, in dollars that from the future, and uh, essentially that would be. You know, the fact that we have debt levels across the world at very, very high relative to GDP would be an indication that we're likely going to see some sort of inflation as opposed to higher taxes and lower lower spending 
uh, from from these governments. But I'm just baffled. I mean, what do you think is causing this deflationary push worldwide, and why is it persisting even in the face of uh, U.S. economic well, growth? Part of it's just technology. Okay. Okay. Uh, that it's 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 less people involved uh, to make a product. Uh, part of it's the uh, decrease in commodity prices uh, that have happened over the last couple of years. Okay, so let's uh, just yeah. so tech, I think the technology. So so you have this technological change that's occurring, so that fewer and fewer people are necessary to create the products. So whereas before you needed a entire assembly, let, let's just talk about manufacturing business. You need an entire assembly line of of people working on that. Uh, all who've had to get paid now it's it's being uh, automated uh, and you have uh, you know robotic activity effectively manufacturing the good and what this is causing is it's causing uh, downward pressure on uh, demand for labor which is causing wages uh, to not uh, uptick uh, which is leading uh, to low levels of inflation and this is not a temporary change this is a permanent change and it's going to just accelerate over long periods of time so that argument's for the deflationary pressure uh, to remain uh, because the technological change is putting downward pressure on wages. Not only in terms of machines, in a way, replacing humans, but also if you do have a, a person working with the technology available, how much more goods are he is he able to produce in an hour versus the productivity numbers are very weak. Have you noticed that? Well, they're more flattening, but compared to 20 years ago, 30 years ago, right? Okay, they're very weak in the U.S. and without the productivity gains. Wages have difficulty going up. Well, you do reach a plateau yeah. uh, where you say, okay, hey, uh, how much more uh, can we squeeze out of this? Uh, but if you take a look, uh, laptops replace desktops, and now notebooks are replacing laptops. Right. Uh, cell phones are replacing notebooks. I mean, uh, you, you, you can go on and on and on and on. And uh, with an iPhone, or a uh, Samsung notebook or note or whatever, you can now do your emails, you can uh, right. run everything that you want, okay, rather be tied down to your desk and, and working right. on so, it. Right, so this should, okay, but this should, you would think this would increase productivity, right? So you think that with, as, as computer technology becomes much, much cheaper, uh, productivity should be uh, increasing, and that's not what's happening. I, I think it's, I think it's because the technology is beginning to replace labor somewhat, uh, in in sort of the means of production, but okay. So one, so let's just talk about what's causing this deflation worldwide. So one is you have a technological change uh, putting downward pressure on uh, wages. The second thing you have is you have uh, essentially uh, every central bank around the world uh, buying bonds to try and stimulate the economy to keep uh, interest rates low. So if people believe that interest rates are going to be very very low, uh, they don't have very, very strong inflationary expectations, and you're not going to see uh, higher interest rates, which tend to lead to higher inflation. And they they postpone their spending they for postpone next their year spending. or the year after, right. so that then causes a downward uh, effect. So the question is, it, it, for, for interest rates to start to tick up, we need to see sort of an increase in inflation occur. So we, and that starts with job gains. Okay, uh, if, if the job gains are there, right? If you don't okay. have the, if you don't have wage inflation, you're not going to see regular price inflation. Yeah. So, uh, and, and wage inflation comes with okay the amount of unemployed people uh, in the market out there. Right, which so, gets back to this concept that the technological change is causing demand for labor yeah. to change. I mean, you have if, if you if you really delve into it, it, like there's there's probably like one in terms of wages and in terms of what's what's weighing on them one is a technological change 
The second is sort of the increase in the labor supply uh, due to you know globalization. Uh, the th so, so really, if you look at just the U.S., it really is the technological change, immigration, uh, globalization, and the lack of unions which are causing wages to uh, really come under pressure. Effectively, well, the goal of a CEO is okay, hey, increase the pro uh, profits, okay, right, and and boost up the stock price, right. Okay, how do you increase profits? You look for the cheapest source, right. So they're going, they're, they're getting the cheapest source of labor. This is going worldwide. This is going worldwide. It's a transfer of. Okay. Now, eventually you reach a point where you say, okay, hey, uh, uh, wages can only go so low. You can right. only, only find the, the, the cheapest person out there. And then eventually, even those uh, countries, as more and more technology or more and more companies set up base there, wages start to go up. Right, but we're okay. not there yet, right? And well, that, that, I mean, there's a transfer of wealth from the developed market the emerging market. So, okay, so let's just, you know, for people listening, in terms of what we think is going to happen, what do you think is going to happen with interest rates? Like, let's, let's just call so, it. Interest so, rates so, right now are like 10-year treasuries right now is at what, 150? Yeah, about, it's about 161. Okay, so uh, 161 basis points. Where yep. do you think they're going to be in a year? I'd be surprised if they are two and a quarter, two and a half. But you right do now. think they're going to be higher. I do they think they have to be, they, right? Well, part of it's going to be is as the Fed raises short-term rates, right. okay, uh, the long-term rates, uh, people will re will demand a risk premium for going out 10 years, 15 years. Okay? Right. You cannot have short-term rates like a t on a on a two-year bond be one and a quarter percent and a 10-year bond at one and a half percent. Especially if you're not in a recession. Especially right? if you're not in a recession, if the economy is still growing at two and a half percent or so, uh, you should not have a flat or inverted yield curve. So. People will demand a premium for going out 10 years, 15 okay, years. Okay, so you think rates are going from 150 to 220 over the next year? That's our expectations. Right. Okay. Now, if unemployment uh, continues to drop and jobs number continue to come in strong, inflation is at the two, two and a half percent level. Mm -hmm. We get some sort of a fiscal response. I mean, we have we'll have new administration coming in in November. I won't be surprised if interest rates are much higher. Okay, but it's too early to say right now. Right. Uh, but it we're, right. be, we're, it, we're looking in our economic commentary. We're looking for the ten-year Treasury uh, to go uh, to about two two point five percent by the fourth quarter of uh, two thousand seventeen. So that's yeah. about we're in like the third quarter of two thousand sixteen. So we're looking for rates to rise. We're looking for the the yield on corporate bonds to rise to, to to remain relatively flat. Uh, but if you do see rates go from uh, 160, 150 to 250, uh, and that shift in the yield curve happens across, you know, different uh, uh, different corporate bond yields, different uh, your credit levels, you're likely going to see, I would think, downward pressure on uh, fixed income securities a little bit. So longer term bonds definitely will come under much right. more pressure. Right. So we're, okay. you're trying to in your in our management of the fixed income securities, we're trying to stay shorter than we normally would because we're anticipating yeah, so some degree. So keep of, your duration uh, tight. Right. Uh, keep the credit quality high. Okay. One of the things that we have seen uh, time and time again is when interest rates have dropped, uh, people rush into higher yielding products, uh, higher riskier products, just right. to get the same type of yield that they were getting before. Right. And a good amount of times they have gotten burnt. Right. You okay. want to be lower on the risk in a rising rate environment. 
you want to be lower duration. on the you want to be lower duration and you but want to be high low high credit high credit, credit. so you, yep. you want to avoid low credit issuers yep. and you want to be a uh, low duration now credit issuers is again just the extent to which the issuer has an ability to pay back what is uh what they're borrowing uh, can you explain duration a little bit so duration in in layman's term basically measures the sensitivity of your portfolio to an increase in interest rates okay uh, when you look at it, it's it's a combination of how much interest rate that particular bond is paying per year and also how far out it's going. And in simplistic terms, if, if, if a portfolio has a duration of five, it's saying that if interest rates go up by 1% across the board, the value of your bonds should drop Ooh, by 5%. 5%. A good okay. way to think about this is that if you think of a bond as being, uh, you know, you, you have these payments that are occurring at different periods of time, uh, so you have these structured payments that are occurring on one side. How would you balance it out with one massive payment on the other side? So what would be the equivalent of sort of uh, in terms of interest rate exposure uh, from a weight and duration? It could be thought of as essentially the average length of time of all those payments. If you got all that bond payment back at one period of time, a duration of five is saying it would be very similar to a five-year zero coupon yeah, bond. And this is one of the reasons why we ladder out the portfolios. Right, you ladder, right. Okay, so we have these laddered bond portfolios, but what we're actively trying to do is because we do see interest rates potentially rising both in our you know, economic outlook and qualitatively what we expect to have happen, we're trying to make a very concerted effort to stay lower in terms of duration and higher uh, in terms of uh, uh, lower in, in terms of uh, credit exposure or higher H higher credit quality. higher credit quality and so we want a higher credit quality yep. a lower duration bond than we would normally have because we're expecting interest rates to rise yeah and one of the things is I mean uh, the, the death of the bond market uh, uh, we have been forecasting or people have been forecasting for, for quite some few, time quite it's, it's been surprising mean, for the last several years I have been saying interest rates are going to be going up and I have been surprised and the market has been surprised uh, by how low interest rates have gone but what's going to have to start to happen is the the technological pressure that's putting downward pressure on inflation and wages is likely going to remain but the central banks eventually are going to have to stop buying uh, fixed income securities in the open market. They're going to have to stop keeping rates low. And as those interest rates start to rise, I think it's very, very reasonable uh, to see interest rates rising over time. And that's going to put, it, it's going to cause some pain for people on the fixed income side, because for 30 years, people have, investors have been looking for the highest yielding fixed income instrument with the worst credit quality, with the highest duration. And that's exactly where you don't want to be when interest rates start 2008 to rise. 2008 was a, was a prime example of that, uh, right. where uh, even though interest rates dropped, right, uh, but because of the lower credit quality of bonds, junk bonds suffered Massive, tremendous losses, tremendous about 45, 50% losses. Right. losses. So uh, yes, you were getting a high interest rate, but so you need to balance it out on the on the credit side. Got it. So we'll come back after the break. But what Manish is basically saying is you want to be avoiding junk bonds. And I would uh, definitely agree with him in the current environment. So after the break, we'll continue to talk about what the outlook is for the fixed income market. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to ZimWealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934 or go to ZimWealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, it's uh, Mitch Zax here with Manish. And what we were talking about before the break is really where we see interest rates and how we're adjusting, how we're managing the fixed income portfolios. And what we both pretty much see happening is that the deflationary pressures that are weighing worldwide that are causing uh, interest rates uh, to remain relatively low are going to start to abate. The technological change argument that's causing uh, deflationary pressure is still going to remain, uh, but the central banks are likely going to start raising interest rates and uh, reduce their buying of bonds. The net result of this is that we're expecting the 10-year U.S. Treasury uh, to go from about 1.6% to about 2.5% in the fourth quarter of 2017. And what we're actively trying to do is keep the duration of the bond portfolios low and keep the credit quality high. We think there is some uh, potential uh, for losses if an investor at this point in time is looking farther out in terms of duration or is looking to take on more and more credit risk. And uh, Manish was talking about in how in 08, uh, when rates, uh, you know, when, when there's stress on the bond market, it's extremely important not only to have low duration, uh, but also to have uh, very, very low credit risk. And uh, throughout all, all how we've been managing uh, money for uh, various clients, we've always tried on the fixed income side uh, to focus on preservation of capital. We think the risk should be borne on the equity side, and uh, there is a bit of a warning in the marketplace right now of potential higher rates, which could cause some of the longer term and lower credit quality bonds to come under pressure. Uh, so that's sort of an overview of what we've been up to uh, so far. And then, uh, Manish, why don't we just go on? You want to talk a little bit about what you see Yellen. Uh, what you, I mean, Yellen has an opportunity to raise rates, I think, in uh, September, November, and December. Uh, and what do you think is going to happen? Well, again, she's mentioned over and over again, it's going to be data dependent. Right. And her speeches, as well as uh, Stan Fisher's speeches, uh, who's the vice chair, 
they're more and more pointing out that they're reaching a point, especially where unemployment rates are right now, yeah. especially where uh, inflation is reaching right now and where they see going forward, that they're very close to pulling the trigger on the on interest rate hike. Do they wait, they wait till after the election? I mean, I've been here saying, yeah. I, mean, I don't want you to, yeah. I, I think that they have to. I mean, I, I'd be very surprised if, I mean, the election is when, November 8th? November 8th. And when is the meeting in November? It's November uh, 20th? It's right around there. It's, it's, right, it's, it's before right, so right, or it's after? It's, uh, I don't have a date right in front of me, but it should be right around there. It's, it's right. uh, six weeks from uh, the September meeting. Uh, historically, uh, well, this would be a good chance for the Fed to show its independence. Okay. So you think they want to signal their independence if from they, the political if they process? They really want to show their independence because right now one of the things that's uh, been tied to the Fed's uh, neck is they're too worried about global events. They're too right. worried about every time they're getting ready to raise rates. Uh, yeah. What was the last? The, the, the first, the first thing was the China slowdown, yeah. and then the, before that, it was, was the the, Euro uh, the European the, banking, yeah. uh, the Greek the Greek crisis, yeah. uh, and, and more recently was the Brexit. Brexit. So okay. it's a Brexit. It's been Brexit, China, and then uh, the European bank uh, exposure to Greece uh, yeah. default. Yeah. And each time that they talk and they were ready to raise rates, something it, it was almost like the market was pushing the Fed to yeah. to, to show so, it not to raise yeah. rates. And they balked each time. They blinked. And that is a very dangerous route for right. the Fed to go down. To. Right. Okay. They need to maintain their independence. They need to show, okay, hey, we're going to be the one controlling where interest rates are going, not what the bond market. Not is, the bond is, market, not the political protesting. outlook, not yeah. the uh, politician. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I mean, the, the danger here really is, you know, we, we talked about one uh, worry that uh, rates are going to be going up. The other worry is that uh, the Fed funds rate is not raised uh, quick enough. And there will be some shock. I mean, we know that there will be a shock in the economy. It doesn't look like one's materializing in the immediate future, but there will eventually be a shock. And if rates are not high enough, there's going to be no way to uh, for monetary policy to affect uh, change in the face of, of recessionary forces effectively. And also, let's say the Fed does rate, raise rates in September yeah. or November. See, I don't think I, they, I, I think they're going to wait till December. Okay. Let's so, go, let, let's just go let's say, say okay. let's say, let's say sometime in the next, they raise rates once this okay. year. How much are they going to raise rates by? I would say 25 basis Okay, points. so in a bigger scheme of things. Right. Okay, when rates have been as high yeah. as four and a half percent, five. They're not going to get anywhere months. close to that. So, are, so go from 0.25 to 0.5 percent. So you think it's an, an initial signaling of an initial rate rise, and it's not followed by, uh, consistent rate rises into the future. I mean, it can't be. If we're saying the 10-year Treasury is going from 150, 160 to 250, uh, and uh, you're still taking, you, you know, you, that, that's going to be accomplished by having a slightly more upward sloping yield curve and just having the Fed funds rate go up by about 25 or 50 basis 25 points. to 50 basis points or so. But for the economy, we're strong enough in, in the U.S. GDP uh, in, in our economic situation that the markets can handle a 0.25% interest rate hike. Okay? Right. It's uh, again when interest rates, Fed funds rates has been as high as 4%, 5%, 6%, even much higher. Just going back uh, seven years or so, the market can handle a 0.25% increase. Okay. So so that is one thing. Uh, the second thing. So you is, think okay. So you think Yellen will eventually? She needs to signal her independence, especially after blinking in the face of you know three macro a, factors. Because I remember before Brexit, before all these events, there was very clear belief that the Fed was going to raise rates, and then it balked. 
what are the Fed, what are the Fed funds futures currently saying in terms of the percentage chance? I mean, we're saying essentially that the ten-year Treasury is going to uh, 250, and uh, the Fed funds rate is going by the end of 2017 to about. So 1%. there is a 40% chance that we could see an interest rate hike on September 21st. Okay. And actually, I just found the date on when the November yeah, when, meeting is November 2nd. Okay. So that is, okay. So that's the election eight. is November 8th, <laughs> and they're meeting November 2nd. I, I, what is, I'm curious, what is the Fed funds uh, futures saying that on November 2nd, that there's a chance that they're going to, they're going to raise rates? It's about a 43.9%. I, I would, it's a toss up. I would it's bet against up. that. Okay. I mean, I, I really would. I just don't yeah. think with uh, the election six days out that the Federal Reserve wants to get involved with it. And if they do not raise in September, uh, and so that could, that could, I mean, it could go two ways. It could argue towards that they really want to raise in September so that they can back off in November, or it could argue towards that they wait out September, November, and go to December. And really go to December. And, they, no. and that's why, and that could be why the Fed funds futures are showing a higher percentage chance of a, of a rate increase in September than in November. The economic data that has been coming out shows that, okay, hey, we're getting into it. No, it's stronger. Energy. Earnings it's strong. are going up. Okay. Uh, jobless numbers are going down. Yep. GDP growth is reaccelerating. Uh, you're not seeing massive employment gains, uh, but at least in the U.S., it does not see, I don't see any sign of recessionary pressures. No, and uh, Q3 and Q4 GDP numbers are expected to average about 2.8%, okay, uh, versus the 1.1% number we just got in Q2. And part of it's going to be the inventory buildup. Yeah. Uh, in Q2, uh, companies did not rebuild their inventory. Right. They were just still selling off what they had. And that's why the GDP numbers so, came right, in. So right long. now it looks like we we got GDP growth materializing. Yeah. You got the Fed raising rates, which traditionally has been actually positive somewhat for the market because they're only raising rates uh, because they're seeing economic growth. Uh, you're seeing uh, the 10-year Treasury uh, starting to rise. So on one hand, you have some signals of economic growth materializing. On the other hand, you have very, very strong signals that the Fed funds rate is going to rise. Uh, all of this seems to be pushing people more towards equities than fixed income a little bit, uh, which makes me think maybe we should be doing the opposite. But basically, I, I would tend to agree with that, that if you see uh, if you see earnings starting to materialize, you see interest rates start to rise, those two things coinciding is consistent with equities performing it's, relatively it's well. It's bullish for the U.S. It's economy. bullish for the U.S. economy. It's bullish for the U.S. market. It's a little bit bearish for uh, fixed income securities worldwide. For longer term fixed income securities, yes, it's, it's bearish. For shorter term, it's not a problem. But again, one of the goals for fixed income should be to lower the volatility of right. your overall portfolio. Right, which I think is a very important point, is that even though we see equities potentially outperforming fixed income, we tend not to try and time the market. Uh, what we tend to do is from a micro standpoint, make sure that we get enough fixed income exposure so that an investor can handle whatever fluctuations are going to occur in the market. So instead of trying to say, okay, we think equities are gonna be outperforming fixed income because interest rates are low, because the economy is recovering, uh, because uh, interest rates worldwide are gonna be uh, ticking up, because the deflationary pressures are going to abate. What we tend to do is say, listen, that's what we expect to happen, but let's make sure we have enough fixed income in the portfolio so that an investor uh, can handle the fluctuations in the equities. Because over long periods of time, what we've seen to be the case is that the, the wealth is really made for individual investors 
by trying to get as high exposure to the equity markets and trying to stay invested, as you were talking at the beginning of the show, in terms of fluctuations and not pulling out. But let's, well, okay, so, but, okay, so, so, so that's, yeah. that's long term. Okay? Long term, right. like, like we, we can all point right. to the 20-year chart, 30-year yes. chart yes. that S&P has done 8%, 9%, 10%, and fixed income has done 4% or right. so. So you should be invested in equities for the right. longer term. The problem that comes in is with the investor psychology yeah. is that we look at the long-term numbers, but most of the time they invest short term. Right. So what good is it to go from a 10% allocation in fixed income to a 50% allocation right. after the market's dropped right. 20%? It isn't. So you have to make sure you have enough of a fixed income allocation that you can handle a, a market pullback or a market correction without reducing your equity exposure. Yep. And we've said this several times before, but let's, getting back to Yellen, where, where basically the Fed funds futures are saying 60% in September. It's about 62, uh, 40% in September. 40 in uh, September. 62% by December. By December. Is yeah. there a number for November or no? 43.9%. Okay, so there's a 60% by the end of the year, and there's like a 40% uh, in September and in November. And we have unemployment data coming out this Friday. And if that because unemployment data is, is above 180,000, right. that's what the expectations are. And the uh, U6, which is more right. important than the U3 that's uh, widely quoted, if that continues to go down into the lower 9% area or so, uh, then that's going to be pretty uh, big for the interest rate market. Uh, but in terms Again, of- the, which, what the market's looking for in this jobs number though is a uh, Goldilocks number. I mean, they do not want it. If they if, see, if they see that number too high, it will sell off. I, I, I don't see a weak number causing a sell off in the market to tell you the truth, especially with the 60% expectation of an interest rate increase. Well, that, that, so that, weaker, that number, I mean, that I number mean, will fluctuate. Right. That number in, will fluctuate. in terms of shorter terms in the equity market, yeah. a weaker number is going to be better because a weaker jobs reading is going to lead uh, investors to anticipate uh, that the Fed, the, stays, the Fed, on Fed stays on hold, uh, which would be beneficial to almost all asset prices. A very strong number would be a negative, I think, for the market. Well. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's all, weird saying also, that, but that's basically how the market's going to likely This is respond. also one of the reasons why you really don't want to focus on month by month right. economic numbers very because point. they do fluctuate. Right. You need to take a look at it in terms of what the averages have been over a three month, six month time frame right. over a year. And that dis that takes away the month to month right. volatility. So basically as what Manisha is saying is that like as you start seeing more jobs created, even though it could be a negative for the market in the short term because it means interest rates are going up. Over the long term, it's a clear indication that earnings are going to be rising, which would be beneficial for the market. So again, what you want to do is you, you don't want to be reacting to these macroeconomic factors. You don't want to be reacting to the macroeconomic news. You want to be uh, working uh, with someone to make sure your equity and debt mix is consistent with your psychological risk profile so you can stay invested over long periods of time. Uh, because generally what we what we you know we're not positive what's going to happen in the next month or three months, but we do know how the game ends. And over long periods of time, the uh, the u s. market is the triumph of the optimist, and the equities uh, tend to outperform fixed income. They tend to generate uh, reasonable rates of return uh, for people uh, that can actually generate some wealth. Uh, but let's uh, getting back to the news, do we have anything else on so, the, so the docket? One of the questions, Mitch, I wanted to yeah. ask is uh, people continuously ask us, okay, should I be invested more in small caps or mid caps or large caps or more in growth or more in value? How does our earnings estimate process help us in sure. terms of you when you're designing the portfolio for the dividend strategy or small cap strategy or so that you are able to target the right areas? Well, that's a very good question, Manisha. And the basic answer is that by focusing on earnings estimate revisions, 
you're identifying the segments of the equity market where earnings expectations are going are growing faster than what uh, people what prices are pricing it. So you're going to see as the economy changes, those earnings estimates materialize in different segments of the market. And those are the segments of the market that you want to overweight. So just like that, there are times when value stocks outperform growth, there are times when growth outperforms value. Earnings estimates are agnostic to uh, both value and growth. They were looking at every stock equally and just identifying where we're seeing earnings estimate revisions materialize. So by following the earnings estimate revisions, at certain periods of time, you're going to be overweighted in value stocks. And at other periods of time, you're going to be overweighting in growth stocks. And And it's a good point to make also that whatever happens in the U.S. economy trickles down to the earnings estimates. Yes, eventually, eventually. And the real question is what people are expecting to have happen, what people are expecting to have happen and how those how the realization uh, comes relative to expectations. If earnings are realized greater than expectations, the market goes up. And that's sometimes why in a very, very strong market environment, uh, good news can actually cause the market sell-off. But uh, we're, we're running out of time here. Generally speaking, it was a good set, good talk here about what's going on with interest rates. And going forward, we think equities are going to do relatively well. Thank you for tuning in this week. Be sure to join Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery for another edition of The Steady Investor next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you haven't started your retirement plan yet, what are you waiting for? Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 